What's up, nerds? Today's guest is Dan Woods, F5's VP of the Shape Security Intelligence Center. Dan's going to tell us about inherent vulnerabilities, his time as a beat cop in the CIA and the FBI. Dan Woods, welcome to Pirate Radio. Great to be here, Matt. So, Dan, you spent 25 years in law enforcement, ranging from being a beat cop uh, to the CIA and the FBI. You've been a uh, member or a, uh, you've been employed at a Russian human click farm. You've got a very interesting background. Um, from all of your pre-F5 shape security experience, what's your favorite declassified story uh, from your time at three-letter agencies? Well, you're really tying my hands when you say it has to be declassified. <laughs> Um, oh, hey, if it's classified, go ahead, too. You're, uh, <laughs> it's just you and me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd, I'd certainly say that my time at, at CIA was some of my, my favorite uh, years of my life. Uh, you know, traveling the world, meeting with human intelligence sources and, you know, uh, working with them to exploit the uh, computer systems that they had access to was was pretty, pretty exciting. I really, really enjoyed it. But there are also aspects about working as an FBI agent I enjoyed. But, but frankly, uh, I think what, what uh, prepared me most for, for life and my career was working as a beat cop, uh, going from, you know, call to call, um, you know, uh, seeing the endless uh, manifestations of ignorance, teaching me the importance of an education, um, you know, engaging in, you know, dozens of interviews and interrogations per day, uh, that that really um, that really helped uh, help me grow as an individual. That's very cool. You're our second uh, uh, interviewer interviewee that's uh, that spent time as a beat cop. Howard Hale from Sisters of Charity, who's now the CISO over there, was uh, spent time as a beat cop as well, and he has kind of similar similar feelings towards it. So that's interesting. Uh, the common threads there. Yeah, it's uh, it's eye opening uh, when you, you. In fact, I'd encourage anybody listening uh, to go on a ride along with your your local police department. Uh, all the thing you everything you see in the media today about law enforcement, they get it all wrong, and and you can learn the truth just by simply going on a few ride alongs and getting to know those beat officers. And you suggest that you get to know them and sit in the front seat instead of don't get to know them and sit in the back seat. Exactly. You do not yeah. want to be in the back seat. <laughs> well, and, and you want to make sure you don't have any warrants when you go for your ride along. Because I, I, had a, I had a guy come to ride along with me. And the first thing we do is we, we check people for warrants. And I, I told him, I said, look, I have good news and bad news. Good news is you will be doing a ride along with me. The bad news is you will be in the back seat. And, <laughs> and it will I, be right now. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, make sure you don't have any, any warrants. Well, the, uh, the, the, the good people that process the uh, running red lights in Greenwood Village, Colorado. I'm not going to do mine in Greenwood Village, Colorado, because I feel like I get one of those once every week. I don't know, I don't know what I've paid, what I haven't. So, uh, yeah, the, uh, the red light cams are, uh, are my only concern, Dan. Yeah, and I share your concern. I, I, I don't like replacing beat officers with uh, computers and robots. I, um, I think that there's a lot of judgment that goes into whether or not somebody gets a citation and uh, cameras and robots aren't capable of making that judgment. Yep. No, that's, uh, that sounds very, uh, very on, on, on the nose. So uh, well, let's get started here, Dan. So uh, your team at Shape Security and, and F5 is building security solutions for inherent vulnerabilities. What is the difference between an inherent vulnerability uh, and the traditional security threats IT organizations have addressed with, you know, tools like firewalls? Uh, 
Well, in, inherent vulnerabilities can't be patched, right? Like an inadvertent vulnerability can, like SQL injection, cross-site scripting. Those can be fixed. They can be patched. They can be removed with good, uh, you know, good security hygiene. An inherent vulnerability is something like, um, you know, your public-facing login page. Uh, you are vulnerable to credential stuffing because you have a public-facing login page. The only way to uh, patch it would be to take down the login page, which of course you cannot do. It's typically a critical business requirement. Uh, so since you have a login page, it's public facing, then bad actors can just try millions of username, password pairs against that login application. And uh, when you're trying, you know, tens of millions, even billions, we've seen attacks go into the billions, you end up taking over a lot of accounts. Um, so that's really the difference between inherent and inadvertent. It's whether or not they can be pat patched in a traditional sense. So, so with those inherent vulnerabilities, the the login pages, the shopping cards, et cetera, um, what what do IT organizations need to worry about um, with with those web facing applications and web facing portals? Well, that they're going to be targeted. Uh, they're they're going to be targeted, not just login, but and you know add to cart, but um, uh, forgot password or create account. Think about a, a company that offers some sort of incentive to open an account. Maybe it's a free cup of coffee or a, or a free donut or maybe a $10 discount on a future purchase. Well, somebody can use automation, use bots and create um, tens of thousands, even millions of accounts. Uh, maybe an enterprise gives away some perk on your birthday. Well, you can create 365 accounts, each with a different birthday and share or enjoy that benefit every day of the year. Or you can create thousands and enjoy it multiple times per day or share it with your friends. So everything that's public facing, you have to think about it from a, from a fraudster, from attacker's perspective. Is there an incentive, even just a perceived incentive uh, for somebody to launch automation against the application. It doesn't always have to be monetary. It could be intelligence gathering, and it doesn't have to be a real benefit, just a perceived benefit. You think about it, burglars break into empty safes all the time because they perceive there's going to be something of value in the safe. So if a bad actor thinks there's something of value in the account, they're going to try to uh, take over the account using credential stuffing. If they think there's some value in creating tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, or even millions synthetic accounts, then they will use automation to do that. Uh, so really, it's just you got to be aware of the incentive that uh, your applications are, are serving up for bad actors. I, I suggest we call that the Geraldo Rivera uh, scenario, uh, <laughs> the, the, the vault with nothing in it. Yes. Uh, uh, Al, so, yeah. Al Capone's uh, safe, yeah, his vault. Yes. Right. <laughs> I, I remember that, although we are dating ourselves. We are dating ourselves. And, and uh, I don't know if I understood what was happening live. Um, I think I'm just under the threshold for being uh, uh, conscious um, at that point. <laughs> but to, to knowing who Geraldo Rivera was would have been a stretch. Um, so, so you've outlined, you know, what these what these threats look like, what people are trying to do. How much bigger of a problem uh, are these inherent vulnerabilities than the average business understands? I'd say it's probably 10x what the average business understands because, uh, you know, we've gone in line, meaning we've deployed our our countermeasures uh, at at many, many, many enterprises. And prior to giving them the report on how much of their traffic is malicious automation, 
we always try to ask, you know, how much of the traffic do you think is malicious? And it isn't uncommon for them to say, well, you know, we've been doing battle with these bats for a few years. So we think we have it largely under control. Probably 20 to 30% of the traffic is uh, malicious bots. And then we say, well, um, it's actually, you know, 98% of all your traffic is malicious bots. And 98% isn't a record. We, we regularly see 99%. We've seen 99.9% of all traffic hitting origin being malicious bots. Uh, oh. So, yeah, think about the, the consequences of that. That's pretty jaw-dropping. Um, my, my time at, you know, FBI and CIA and as a beat cop, I saw a, yep. lot of, a lot of interesting things, but I have to admit when I got to to shape, to F5 shape, and I saw some of these these attacks, I was I was really blown away at their size and scope. And it's largely because they're not coming from a few dozen IP addresses anymore. Um, over the years of being mitigated by, you know, by IP address, uh, these attackers have learned and they've become highly, highly distributed. It's not uncommon for us to see attacks coming from uh, millions of IP addresses and enterprises, you know, typically catch the first, you know, maybe dozen or a hundred uh, IPs that are the noisiest, but they'll miss the long tail of over a million IPs that are responsible for maybe only 15 or 20 transactions each, but uh, they, they make up 70 to 80% of the attack. That's um, imagine if you're a beat cop and 99.8% of your interactions were, uh, were with criminals It'd be, it'd be, uh, It'd be difficult. It'd be a long. It'd be a long day. That's for sure. Yes. Yes. Only. Only that uh, Greenwood Village, Colorado uh, camera gets to uh, gets to be right 100 percent of the time with the bad guys. Um, That's right. So, uh, Shape Security's got a got a fun pedigree. Uh, it's founded by Google engineers. Came out of stealth mode in 2014. Was acquired by F5 in 2019. Uh, you've been with Shape for many years. Um, obviously, it's a smart team. There were uh, strong insights and foresight um, that there were that inherent vulnerabilities were going to become a uh, you know growing problem for businesses. Um, but if you could go back seven years, what threats do you think the industry and the shape team may have underestimated originally? Huh, that's uh, that's a good question. I guess real quick, I'll, I'll I'll add that not only were we founded by Google engineers, also by Department of Defense uh, personnel. So these are these are people who had a lot of visibility into these attacks very early on, uh, hitting the Department of Defense and the intelligence community. So they took a lot of that knowledge, both you know from uh, click fraud at Google and the attacks against the DoD and the IC, and that was really what gave birth to uh, to shape. But what did we over or underestimate? Um, I, I think that that. What is coming to mind now is something that we we overestimated. And so that's not exactly the answer to your question, but uh, I think it's interesting. We really um, overestimated the sophistication of the attackers. Um, you know, six, seven years ago when we came out of stealth and kind of kind of launched our countermeasure, uh, we were expecting to see the same uh, sophisticated attackers that you know uh, our founders saw hitting DoD and the IC. When in fact that those that level of sophistication didn't manifest in the in the private sector for for years, so our our countermeasures were 
were way more uh, sophisticated than they needed to be uh, to to deal with many of the attackers early on. Of course, over the last year, we're starting to see some um, some criminal organizations, some bad actors, really uh, start to match some of the levels of sophistication we saw, and we also actually see state actors operating against our customers. And of course, when you have unlimited resources and time, and you're not necessarily driven by by money, you're driven by intelligence gathering. Um, then you know you're you're capable of some very sophisticated attacks. So I guess the short answer is I, I I don't recall anything we underestimated, but we certainly overestimated the level of sophistication of attackers. Well, it probably gave you a good chance to get ahead of ahead of the uh, the, the novices. Um, so was were they under what were the original attackers state sponsored, focused on Department of Defense, and then with Shape Security, you were exposed to you know. Um, Bad actors, mom's basement, 18-year-old, you know, trying to hit Starbucks or yeah. a customer with, you know, somebody they could get uh, gift cards from. Yeah, early on, that's exactly what we, what we saw. But um, as we did battle with attackers and they started to evolve uh, and our countermeasures uh, got more and more sophisticated, then, um, you know, we're almost kind of the, the victim of our own success. Had, had Shape not come on board to force these attackers to evolve and get more sophisticated, they probably wouldn't have. But we forced them to become more sophisticated. And really, it's unfortunate because, you know, Shape is able to protect all of its customers, but these same sophisticated actors are, are launching attacks against enterprises that are not in the Shape network. Um, so, you know, hopefully that uh, they're going to be joining the Shape network soon or they're, you know, developing something that can keep up with some of these attacks. Um, giving a, an example of what I mean by, you know, a sophisticated uh, attacker. A sophisticated attacker would come from a highly, highly distributed uh, attack infrastructure. So, um, you know, probably hundreds of thousands or millions of IP addresses. And they wouldn't come from, say, all over the world or from one country. They would come from the countries that the target's customers are associated with. So, in other words, their, their traffic would blend in with the legitimate customer traffic. Uh, and then finally, they'll, they'll, be very, very good at spoofing devices and very, very good at spoofing a human interaction. Their mouse movements, their keystrokes will have human-like entropy. Um, they'll, they'll um, uh, even their um, devices, you know, like one example, we, we study the way devices and the way browsers do floating point math. And we can tell if the user agent string says they're edge, but they're doing floating point math like Chrome, we know they're lying. Well, the really sophisticated attackers start to spoof all of those signals really, really well. Um, but we, again, we, we come out on top. Uh, we, we make it so that these attackers, they're, uh, they're too expensive uh, for it to be profitable for them. So they typically either move on to a softer target or we see them uh, evolve to just really human click farms where they're just using humans sitting somewhere uh, doing their best to to launch the, the attacks. And of course, these are humans, so they have entropy in their mouse movements and keystrokes. Um, but uh, there are some other things that we've identified unique to uh, human bad actors, such as, you know, navigating workflows lightning fast. It's nice to see the bad actors getting back to basics, you know, just... Uh, you know, uh, fundamentals, just uh, yeah. farms of, of, yeah. uh, of uh, hundreds of uh, state sponsored uh, bad, bad actors. 
Um, right. What, you know, what always gives us the advantage is the, the reason they spoof all these signals is to try to hide in the noise, but they have no idea what the noise looks like. You know, they might use the, the top 10 most popular user agents on the internet, but those aren't necessarily the top 10 most popular user agents among our customers' traffic. Um, so it's those sorts of anomalies that allow our, our AI and ML systems to fire off alerts that are then reviewed by humans. Um, this is, I think this is why we've, we've been as successful as we have. Well, that's, uh, that's fantastic. So you continue to sort of, you know, raise the bar, um, you know, to protect against inherent vulnerabilities. Where's, what, where's the, what's the next generation of things, you know, as we, as you try to stay, the industry in general tries to stay a step ahead of the, of the bad actors, what are the new vulnerabilities? What are the new technologies that's making uh, that's making this space difficult for for anyone providing a solution? Well, you know, think about you know back in the '90s when we'd all be looking for a zero-day exploit, uh, and then uh, once it was discovered, you needed to be pretty sophisticated to you know write um, the code to exploit that zero-day vulnerability. Uh, and then they're started to uh, kind of develop the code to exploit the vulnerability and making that code available to a bunch of people who aren't, they don't have the skills to write the code themselves. I think we're, we're, we're seeing the same thing when it comes to bot attacks. Um, you know, a year or two ago, you needed to uh, be, you know, pretty sophisticated to launch a sophisticated bot attack. But now there are a lot of uh, third parties that are making the, this almost available as a, as a service where you don't have to have the skills, the, the coding experience to launch the attack. You don't have to have your own botnet. You could you can you know lease these capabilities for, for a fee and uh, all that that sophistication that is required uh, is shifted from the individual actor to the infrastructure. Um, so I think that's uh, going to be the challenge for many, many enterprises. They're going to see a significant increase in the level of sophistication hitting their web and mobile applications. So you know, you've got that, the background with law enforcement, CIA, FBI. Um, how, how are those agencies doing, you know, in partnership with, you know, with the commercial space, with, with, you know, customers transact, you know, in, active in commerce. Um, how, how are they doing in the partnership to cap, you know, catch and, and, um, and stop at least, at least domestic, um, bad actors. Yeah. I think, I think FBI, uh, and, you know, secret service, um, us, uh, postal inspectors. I think a lot of the federal law enforcement are doing everything they can, the, the challenge really is on the private sector. They're not, they're not doing everything they can. Oftentimes, they don't reach out to the law enforcement in their area until there's a problem. And they, they need to reach out and establish a relationship with their local field office right away. Um, and then also, they need to involve law enforcement when they've been compromised. Many enterprises, they, they just don't involve law enforcement. They Instead, they just want the attack to go away, and they don't want the headlines. But I think that, uh, that enterprises would be well-served if 
They just made it a standard practice to go to law enforcement, uh, arm law enforcement with what they need to engage in an investigation, perhaps find the perpetrator and, uh, and uh, you know, make them hold them accountable. Right now, with, with uh, the enterprises not wanting to involve law enforcement, it makes it really hard on law enforcement. And then law enforcement can, can help, I think, by when private sector companies come to law enforcement and say, hey, we've been hacked, um, that you know, perhaps you can you can engage in the investigation in as stealthy as a way as possible, as so to minimize those headlines that the enterprises are so worried about. So I think uh, both the uh, the federal or the even local, I mean, all law enforcement can do better, but so too can private sector. Uh, again, back to our, our first episode with with Howard Hale, uh, the CISO for Sisters of Charity. Uh, one of his recommendations to other CISOs was the conversation was around ransomware. Uh, specifically, but um, getting getting ahead of it and making sure you do have those relationships, and so you're you're, you're echoing uh, his thoughts on that, and and what I think responsible CISOs are probably doing. Um, it's but it's scary the, the age of uh, you know you can get your you're on the front page of the paper, right? If if something goes goes badly and people you know want to put their head in the sand a little bit. Yeah, yeah, they do. Um, Matt, I actually think that there are a lot more ransomware attacks than than uh, than than anyone thinks. Um, I think you know when I hear these experts say uh, there are more in the last year than they have been in the previous five years or something like that. I don't buy that. I think no. that they've been going on for decades, and I think there are likely thousands of enterprises that have been hit with ransomware attacks. They paid the ransom and never told anyone. I think if you ask any enterprise, that's their preferred path forward. And if they could yeah. do it, they will. Um, and I think there really needs to uh, be, um, you know, maybe some legislation that says, no, if you are the victim of a ransomware attack, you are required by law to noti- notify, you know, uh, th- you know, this, this entity. And uh, if you don't, then the fine should be, um, you know, significant to the point yeah. where it, it's advantageous for them to, take their hand, head out of the sand and to deal with the problem before them. Otherwise, they're paying it. It's like paying the kidnappers. Uh, it just incentivizes uh, more of what you don't want. Well, it sounds like it sounds like some of that legislation is coming down for mission critical infrastructure for hospitals, for uh, you know, uh, cities, municipalities, things like that. But yeah, I think it probably needs to be something that um, the public and private sector are just are partnered on, you know, that it's. <laughs> It's um, there's an expectation that it's going to it's not going to be reflected on your taxes as a million dollars with a cryptocurrency for the company party yeah. <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, you know, it's yeah something exactly. where, the, where people are trying to, uh, you know, av- av- avoid the, the negative press. Yeah. Although I have to say the, the line between what is critical infrastructure and what is not isn't isn't uh, very clear. Uh, there are a lot of organizations that maybe, according to the letter of the definition, aren't critical infrastructure, but perhaps perhaps should be. Um, you know, you think about just a, a bank. You know, if if uh, a bad actor, a, a state actor, perhaps logged into, uh, took over uh, hundreds of accounts uh, in a day but didn't do anything to monetize that access. You know, they didn't add a pay, send money to the pay, yep. they didn't do anything. They just continued to access the account day after day after day for years and every day add more compromised accounts to their inventory and then one day decide to monetize all of them. 
Um, That would that could cause a run on the banks, which would have a obviously a devastating impact on the economy. So even a small community bank, in some way, is is part of our critical infrastructure. At at least uh, when you look at it in the context of of uh, the types of attacks that are possible. And and you could look at you know uh, tier one technology companies, you know F 5s peers. If if one of them were to be hit. You know, what kind of exposure is that? You know, the solar winds kind of stuff, you know, yeah. the, these yeah. scenarios where uh, a, a relevant technology to a lot of private and public sector folks gets compromised. And uh, it, it is, it, it's a very hard line to draw between critical and non-critical infrastructure. Right. And then if you have, say, uh, you know, enterprises that are competing with one another, but one of them is burdened with the label of being critical infrastructure and having all of these onerous requirements to satisfy and the other one isn't, um, then, you know, you're going to have uh, you're going to have a problem. I, I really think it's incumbent upon um, everybody, private sector and the government to make sure uh, every single enterprise um, is is well secured. And sadly, uh, that's not happening. It's just left, it's really left up to every individual enterprise to do things as they wish. And I, one of the things I do for F5 Shape is to do uh, security assessments for these you know, global 2000. So I'll go in and look at their web and mobile applications, look at the way they're configured, look at the workflows, and look at all the different ways that a bad actor can exploit those inherent vulnerabilities. And I'm telling you, Matt, there are times where I, I find dozens and dozens of vulnerabilities you know, for an enterprise that just doesn't have any idea what they're doing when it comes to security. And then other times I just briefed a a large uh, uh, electronics retailer the other day and they are state of the art. Uh, They still have some inherent vulnerabilities because as I mentioned, they're inherent, you can't patch them, but everything else, everything else they're doing perfectly, really state of the art. And the contrast between those two enterprises, uh, we need to close that gap and bring everybody up to the, the level of sophistication that this electronics retailer is sitting at right now. Well, that's, that's great, Dan. Well, we sure appreciate your time. Um, it's great getting to uh, get your thoughts on inherent vulnerabilities, the state of cybersecurity, et cetera. Uh, and we look forward to next time. I enjoyed it, Matt. Thanks so much.